Listen, I don't have much time, but do you feel like you're going out of your gourd? Are you, do you have the cabin fever? Have you run out of Netflix to watch? If, has the thought occurred, hey, you know what? I can make funny stuff. I've been watching TikTok. I've been watching all the social networks and seeing what kind of creativity is coming out. I could create that. Hey, you know what? I wish they made a podcast about this. Well, you know what? You can make your own podcast. Go to anchor.fm. Go to it, please, right now. Make your own podcast. It's the lazy person's way to make stuff. You can make little segments. Uh, you could put music on there, found sounds, babies laughing, neighbors throwing frisbees, uh, uh, your friends playing guitar. Ah, it's so good. Anchor.fm. Please get this and find me. Inspirato Projecto. Let's be friends. Okay? Anchor.fm. Hi, this is Jay Ossing from Twin Peaks The Return. You're listening to Inspirato Projecto. Uh, you, you, what you, what you trust, um, and what's nice about still being a creative person is you, you, what you trust is like you can have an idea and you can really feel something for it, but not know where it's going to end up. Yeah. And yeah. so you, but not freak out when you don't know, because in fact the the, the most exciting thing is getting to a certain point with something, and then leaving it or presenting it to someone else, hitting a brick wall and knowing because you've hit that brick wall, it's not finished, you're going to go to somewhere that you've not expected. What you just heard there is Tom York interviewed by a fella from Apple, I don't know, just said Apple in the bottom right-hand corner. The uh, If you search for it on YouTube, you can find it Look for Tom uh, Tom York Anima interview A N I M A Anima. <clears throat> My sister Jenny and I just watched this last night. We saw it on Netflix. We put we put the volume way up there, and we just just immersed ourselves in this phenomenal concoction. That Tom York was involved with making. Paul Thomas Anderson, do you know who that is? Paul Thomas Anderson, he's done tons of awesome stuff. He did Boogie Nights, Magnolia. I think he did the uh, oil. I want the oil. Daniel Day-Lewis was in it. Punch Drunk Love. Oh, Inherent Vice. I think he did that one, and I still mean to see that one. Uh, here, here, uh, I, I was going to disclose something. Huh. Cause then I, 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 I examined my motivations in telling it. Well, yeah, here we go. I, I, I questioned myself, why would you tell the audience this? Why would you tell, why would you say this? Well, if I don't say this out loud, I might not remember it. And um, this is something, if, if you're a, a teacher, um, does, uh, if you're a substitute teacher, this is something that just for you to consider. Um, always screen your movies. I'll just say this, always screen your movies 
before you choose to bring them in as something to show a class when you're substitute teaching. So having said that, I had a substitute teach, and I think it might have been eighth graders, seventh or eighth graders, but I think it was eighth graders. And um, I was looking through my movies, and I looked at Punch Drunk Love. I thought, well, it's got Adam Sandler in it. There's a good message in this. What I didn't realize was all the swearing involved. Uh, And there's a part in there, I don't know if you remember. I don't think there's any nudity. I don't think. We didn't see any, at least during that 40 minutes in class. I think I shut it off before I let it go too far. I'd like to believe. But there's a scene in there. So just imagine, okay, so just imagine the the first, I don't know, 30 minutes of that movie screened for these kids. And it's Adam Sandler, um, well, he's a lonely guy. And he calls up a lady on the phone who talks kind of sexy to him. It was at that moment I realized, "Uh uh-oh, I should have screamed this. And I shut it off. I shut it off. And I believe I had him draw that day. I'd usually bring in Bottle Rocket by Wes Anderson, another Anderson that I really appreciate the work of. I'd show that I had the VHS tape of that, and those 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 classrooms still had VHS tapes back then. So I'd play Bottle Rocket. There was nothing wrong in there. Uh, maybe pieces of the language were were. Yeah, there were pieces because there there were parts where people are arguing with each other. And I just treated these kids like, okay, you can handle this language. You, you, you use it yourselves. I'm sure you hear your parents use it. What I loved about Bottle Rocket was uh, there's, there's a partner where he meets this girl named Inez. Um, Luke Wilson's character meets a, a beautiful maid motel maid, housekeeper. And uh, he falls in love with her, except she's, she speaks very little English. And so there are just these great scenes where he's trying to, he's trying to, he gets her, uh, her coworker, Rocky, I think his name is. And he's, you know, Rocky is bilingual. And so Luke Wilson's character is trying to tell Inez, how he feels about her, how much he loves her and all this stuff. And meanwhile, Rocky is translating it. And, you know, they've only been at this motel, uh, 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 Owen and Luke Wilson, 
Dignan. Dignan is his name. Dignan is, is uh, Owen's name. I forgot what Luke's name is. So, they're staying at this hotel. They're on a run. And, uh, their, their uh, buddy, who they helped rob a library with, <laughs> um, the, the, he's, he sneaks away from him in the morning, takes the keys. So, Dignan and uh, Luke Wilson's character are just kind of stranded there, wondering, oh God, how are we going to get out of here? What are we going to do? So they're, they're spending their little bit of money. They probably got only a couple hundred bucks. And they're spending that money on their, on their motel. So it's just funny. There's, there's ju- just such a funny scene with Luke Wilson telling, him, you know, telling her how he feels. And then Rocky's trying to translate it. And just awesome. So I thought that the kids would get a, get a kick out of that. Because a lot of the kids that um, at, these, at these schools that I'd substitute teach, there was... You know, a lot of times it was, uh, there were a lot of Spanish speakers in there. So I thought, hey, here's something for everyone. It's funny. It's witty. It's uh, better than the stuff that they're probably watching at home. <laughs> and, and plus they get to be introduced to the, to the, uh, to the, uh, to, to the Wilson brothers and Wes Anderson. And ideally... Ideally, every time they see Owen Wilson, every time they see Luke Wilson, um, and every time they see a, PT, uh, a, an, uh, a Wes Anderson movie, they will think of that, those times where I showed those to them. There is a... Oh, Isle of Dogs! I have not yet seen. That's by Wes Anderson, his stop-motion movie. I have yet to see that. Man, I got to tell you, I love it when he brings back the old gang. You know, when there's going to be, when there's a Wes Anderson movie, you know Bill Murray's going to be involved. (laughs) Uh, You know, there's good chance that uh, Jason Schwartzman or Owen Wilson or even Luke Wilson is going to pop up in there. There was Kumar. Kumar. This is the interesting thing. When I saw Bottle Rocket, when I was going to, was it? Was I going to Columbia College at the time, I think? Yeah. And then I ended up moving out to California. Then I worked on a short film with Robert Zimiga called Wakan. And through that, I met John Blair, who ended up becoming the bodyguard for, uh, what's her name? The girl in Twilight. And... Now he's got his own bodyguard company. It's just great. Security company. Companies all over the world. And I also met this other guy, John something else. And he was a writer. And he was shooting a short film. They were using a drone. This was, this was rare back in the day, using a drone. I mean, this was rare. Actually, it was more of like a helicopter. It was a remote control helicopter that had a camera on it. They attached that whole camera to that thing. I think they might have been shooting in, I don't know if they were shooting in video uh, video or film, but digital back then, I don't think digital was really being used. I, I don't, I cannot remember really right now. However, I remember them strapping this, you know, very securely onto this like little helicopter and, brrr, and they're going to get 
really cool shots of walking down the street and stuff. So that guy, he was a part of the other movie. He asked me if I want to be a part of this, help out. I said, yeah. On that set, who did I meet? Kumar from Bottle Rocket. And he was also in, uh, oh gosh, the Russian, uh, uh, the, uh, he was in Rushmore. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he was also in the, the, oh, it was the one about the family. The family, the Royal Tenenbaums. Tenenbaums, he was in that one. And so, so I met him. And during that time, I was putting on a, a play. We're putting together a kid's play with my friend Katie Cassis, Shannon O'Neill, Darren Tunder, some other folks that I knew from Columbia College who had ended up moving out to California. And what happened was Katie was teaching at the time. She was teaching... I can't remember what grades, but she was teaching at the time. And um, she was teaching at the time. And what she did was she had her students write down like stories, basically. And she said, okay, we will... We will act out these stories. We'll put on these stories. You just write out your stories and put on the stories. And so so our little troop of people, of folks, we would rehearse this stuff. And then we would, we ended up going to her school, like for an assembly. And we played, we played the, the kids' stuff right in front of us, right in front of them and their parents and everyone. And it was just cool. It was just really cool for those kids to be able to see their own stories acted up on stage. So then Katie, <clears throat> something happened where she was able to get a one-woman show during, um, like, this theater festival. And so she had that, and through some sort of something, one of the theaters gave her two free nights. You know, like, okay, if you decide to put this on again... Or, or, you know, even if it's a different project, you got two free nights at this particular theater. So what we decided to do was we took all of those stories. We did the, 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 the thing that we did at the assembly. We took all that and we did it, the same thing, at this theater. We called ourselves Red Dirt Theater. Red Dirt Theater. She, she always had a love for Colorado. And uh, she ended up moving out there. And uh, Katie and I were inseparable when we were going to Columbia College. Katie Cassis, authentic, authentic, laughs loudly at, at just the right places. <laughs> at just the, the, I'll say, when I say right, I'm talking about, you know, she gets the jokes gets them all, and then it adds to them. Man, there is just, ooh, such, you know, there's nothing for me greater than just, oh, man, just jazzing along with language, hanging out with people, just language, language is a jazz. Language is a jazz. <laughs> and the intentions we're putting into that music, and that's felt by the audience. That's felt by the listener.
whether it's me, whether it's you, <laughs> whether the you I'm talking to is me, <laughs> whether the me I'm talking to is you. Katie Cassis, she, I always wanted to be in a play with her. So there it was, the universe granted me. We were both in the same play, actually, in Columbia College. It was called Ivanov by Anton Chekhov. Ivanov and uh, Russian, Russian play. And Sheldon Patinkin was directing it. And Sheldon Patinkin was a big deal around school. It was my first year at that school. I only went there two years. I spent four years doing all of my general education. I spent four years doing all my general education at COD, which is called College of DuPage. That's the same one that John Belushi and Jim Belushi went to. They went to that college many years before me. And then I went to the same high school as Billy Corgan, called Glenbard North High School. Also, someone else you might know, Keely Sanchez. Do you know who John Sakura? Uh, Joe Sakura. Joe Sakura. He's a he's an actor out there on on uh, on TV shows now. Joe Sakura. I was in a play with him called The Monkey's Paw. Jeez, it's so interesting. These 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 really talented people. So, at COD, I took my general studies, and then I was just in plays. I thought, okay, you know what? Get all of that out of the way, and then bam, go to go to Columbia College. So I was just really, just really, just just really tuned in. And I had a girlfriend at the time who was going to Columbia College while I was going to to COD. It had always been my dream to go to Columbia College because my cousin Dan, he went to Columbia College for film. And uh, he would shoot Super 8 millimeter stuff with my brother and I out in the woods. We started this thing. It was kind of like a a Mad Max kind of thing, like a post-apocalyptic thing. I had this old Benji t-shirt that was all like torn up and like burned and stuff and we were carrying bows and arrows and there was just going to... Well, that's what it was. I pointed and I pulled back the arrow and then they cut to a shot of someone holding the arrow in them. Gosh, I wonder what happened to that footage. So since that early age, the only college I ever knew about was Columbia College. Well, wouldn't you know, back during those days, they accepted anybody who wanted to go to that college. It's a private college. It's a liberal arts college that is focused on the arts. What a, what a, what a utopian place to be for an artist. There is screenwrite, screenwriting, there was television, there was radio, there was, of course, theater, dancing, creative writing. I mean, art, all kinds of cool stuff. So that was like, okay, cool. When I got to Columbia, I just took the classes I wanted. I took a couple of general education classes, but wow, I graduated with honors, because all the classes I, I wanted, all the classes that I went to, I, I showed up all the time. I loved it. Oh, my God. It was such a joy to go to these classes. To be in these classrooms with these, these oh, highly experienced and excited students who, who are just, man, they're, they're just so excited about just working together and creating this thing. Just amazing, 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 amazing. So I had heard about Sheldon Patinkin through other people. Um, there were a couple of these guys I had heard 
Oh, yeah, so that was the thing. So when I was going to COD and my girlfriend at the time, Sarah Brannon, she, uh, she was from high school. That was, I, I had met her in high school. And she went, off to Colum- she went off to Columbia College. I was at COD, and I was just resenting it. Like, oh, man, she's at Columbia. I'm at COD. But, you know, I didn't realize at the time all of the necessary stuff I had to go through while I was there at, at COD. All of the – in, in order to meet the people that I met, taking, you know, the specific classes that I took that then led me to meeting this person, and then that led me to meeting this person, and, and so on and so forth, all the way, all the way down the line. And so I had, so by the time I got to Columbia College, some of those actors that I had seen acting on the stage before were still there. So there I was auditioning for these plays and going, you know what, I'm, you know, I'm not as good as these guys. I'm just willing to get whatever I get. And I went in for my first auditions. As soon as they had them, I go, okay, you know what? I'm going to audition. I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm tired of just seeing plays. I'm going to be in, I'm going to be in them. So then I went out and when you, when you audition, I think you have a monologue. I can't remember. I can't remember if we had a monologue and we did it in a theater full of all the directing students, all the students that were in directing classes, classes one, two, three, and then I think they had independent. Um, so all these folks at various stages and they were all casting projects so they so while they're watching you, if they liked what you're doing, bam, they'd keep you in mind. They'd write you down and they go, okay, I'm going to call that person in to, to read for, for my, my play. And it's, it, it was interesting. It was like a week past or something. And then all of a sudden up on the wall is all the callback stuff. And some people will get called back for a lot of different things. I was very surprised to see that I was called back for numerous projects. One of them was called the something author. Um, what was it called? Like the secret author? No, something author. Basically, and I, I, I thought that was fantastic. I thought that was fan, f- phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Sheldon Patinkin, by the way, he ran the directing department. So I'd seen him around. I'd seen him around college and stuff. Um... So what I didn't realize was that he also had a hand in helping these, stu- you know, these directors and figuring out who was going to be in their plays and stuff. So, so I was called into uh, audition for these, these particular plays. So, oh, author. Yeah, wait, something author. Something author. And I loved that one. That one was with, like this guy who starts writing these awesome projects and it turns out that he's got this weird like gremlin living in his closet. And it's the gremlin that's giving him all these phenomenal ideas, but the author is getting all of the credit for it. And um, reminds me a little bit of, you know, the movie Roxanne with Steve Martin where he, he says the poet, you know, the poems to the guy and then the guy s- says them to uh, Daryl Hannah. And... It was one of those things where the the author's voice, I think that's what it was called, author's voice. And was that an Ionesco play? No, 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 it wasn't an Ionesco play. I think it was a play by the guy who does Baby with the Bathwater. Another just great surreal playwright. 
Uh, <laughs> so author's voice, that was one of them I was really excited about. Uh, and there's one that I, I kept hearing everybody talking about. And uh, this guy named Philip Lee was going to direct it. And it was, it's, it was called Glengarry Glen Ross. And everybody was making a big deal about this play. I knew nothing about it. I just knew what people were saying, saying, holy cow. These were some of the things I had heard people say. Glengarry Glen Ross is like Shakespeare. David Mamet is like modern-day Shakespeare, the way that he writes. That's, and, then, and I kept hearing, it's very hard to do. It's very hard to do. It's very hard to do. And I just heard so much coming from all over the place about that play that I did not want to be in it. I wanted to be in this author's voice play and I, that I really hoped that I'd get cast for. <laughs> and uh, I remember I had a blast with author's voice and then um, Glengarry Glenn Ross was fun. It was fun because the language, David Mamet, the way that he layers his language, it's, it's phenomenal. It's just like how regular conversations happen out there in the world. You know how, so some, okay, so a lot of times conversation with conversations are people talking over each other. When you got two or three people, they're like, oh, yeah, thing and this thing. Oh, yeah, and that, bam, 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 bam. You can listen to like two people talking and you kind of answer one while you're answering another one and bam. And then when someone's asking you a question while you're answering this one, and bam, bam, bam. And... So that's how David Mamet writes, very natural. And I also had heard rumors that he once was a teacher at Columbia College, and if you were late, he would throw books at you if you tried to enter the room. I also had heard that he would lock the doors, so if you were late, you couldn't get in. <laughs> get into his class. I think he taught screenwriting or something. Wow, this is bringing back so many memories of Columbia College. Holy cow. I got to have a podcast, another podcast about, who knows, it might be this one. Let's just, let's just keep moving forward here. So Glengarry Glen Ross, I get, call, I get called in, and I'm doing this language. And now this is the thing is about, about it, was that Sheldon didn't want to do it. I don't know if he didn't like David Mamet, the, the man who was the teacher there previously, years before, or if he just didn't like the language. Or one of the things that we had heard was that it's, it's just all guys in it. It's just all guys in it. And this guy, Philip Lee, goes, okay, what if we change a couple of these roles to women? So it's women sales people. And so that's what they did. And they included a piece of the movie version of Glengarry Glen Ross, which was still written by David Mamet, which is so beautiful. The whole steak knives thing. Always be closing. A, B, C. That's not in the play. But it's in the movie. So we, we glued those together, and we made that woman, uh, what was it, Elk Baldwin? Was he the one? Always oh, be closing. We made that a woman. And, and I think we made two, two more roles, women, or one more role, a woman. A woman boss. Oh, yeah, that's right. There are three sales people, then the woman boss. Yeah, and one of them was a lady. No, three... Four of us. There's four guys. We each had our desk. That's what it was. No. <laughs> Three guys, two women. There we go. Three guys, two women. And uh, so, yeah, I ended up getting this part for Moss. 
the character Moss, which is done by Ed Harris. And whoa, I looked at this stuff. These were monologues and monologues. These were pages. There would be conversations because my character, he, he's just really talking a lot to this person. And trying to convince them that they want to get this. Um, what are they selling? Oh, real estate. Glengarry Glen Ross. That's the name of the real estate. Ah, that's what it was. They're trying to sell houses. Always be closing. Yes, okay. So in these conversations with my character and the other character that I'm trying to convince, hey, maybe you ought to buy this house or maybe I'm talking with the other character about something we should do. Um, to, you know, to, to get ahead in some way. The whole, th- it, the whole conversation is just my character talking, talking, talking. And then every once in a while, the other character go, oh, or, well, or, what if, what if, or, you know, <laughs> little tiny things like that, just getting steamrolled. And halfway through, you know, my rehearsals with this thing, I started to get the idea of kind of playing with my nose, you know, itching my nose. While, while talking. It's in my nose, you know. Not picking my nose, but just, you know, you know, doing, like, and then, like, kind of, like, just kind of messing with my nose. So when it came time for the play, that just seemed like a, a natural thing to me, and I thought, huh, what if this guy is on cocaine? I've never done cocaine, nor do I ever intend to. But this, I had this idea that maybe this character, uh, maybe that's his thing. Maybe that's why he's so desperate to to close this deal. Because he's trying to support his habit. Everything's just spiraling out of control for him. So that popped in my brain. And I had so, it was crazy. I mean, <laughs> to memorize these I had to just repeat them over and 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 over. And when I would drive to school, whenever, a lot of times, sometimes when I had rehearsals, I'd drive. Sometimes I would take the train out there. And while when I would drive, I had this mini cassette recorder and I wow I can't believe I I never recorded any of my conversations at Columbia College I don't think unless I did I know I got a bunch of micro cassettes I probably ought to dive into those huh I probably ought to dive into those and see what's on there did you know move that over to digital so I have it for good. 
it's something I'm, I gotta think about. So I would listen to this micro cassette recorder of my of my language, and I would just repeat right along with what the person was, you know, myself talking. I just and I would just repeat along, repeat along, repeat along, and I remember. So, at some point during your rehearsals, they call in Sheldon Patinkin, and I still slightly kind of knew who he was because I had heard that he had something to do with Second City. So, so, so one of the, so for every one of these directing students, they, they would get it, they would get their, uh, actors to a certain point and then Sheldon would come in and he'd give his notes. So Sheldon gave these notes and he just wonderful notes. He'd say, don't, don't swing your arms when you, when they drop. He said, hold still when you're talking. You don't need to gesture with your head. Don't, don't bend forward. Trust the words that are coming out of your mouth. Trust the words that are coming out of your mouth. If you feel it, we will feel it. If you manufacture it, we can see it manufactured. So you feel it first. Man, he gave so much great advice. He'd write down notes. He'd say, you don't have to talk so fast. You know, stop, stop talking so fast. Well, during those days, I was, I was hanging out at Harrison's Snack Shop. And uh, it was, yeah, on Harrison Street, a few, few blocks down from 11th Street. 11th Street is where the, the theater building was. Harrison Snack Shop, I loved it. I loved it. It reflected so much, kind of like the uh, Balm and Gilead. Not, not, not as definitely not as destitute. Uh, creative, exciting. All these Columbia College students in there. I would just sit in there. I had, you know, if I had money, because I could only work on the weekends, and what little money I had went towards my train fare, my gas money. Um. Insurance. Luckily, I was very fortunate to still be living with my dad at the time. I don't know how any student could live there and w- still have time to work and still have time to memorize their lines and do all their homework and all that razzmatazz. Man, that that just was baffling to me. So I t- all of my money went into the the traveling from Glen Ellen s- suburb, <whistles> hopping on the train going out, off into Chicago. And so the little money I had, every once in a while I'd get maybe a grilled cheese sandwich, but it was just coffee. And I wish I remember the name of this very nice waitress who was always willing to uh, serve us. I mean, just constantly. just so, And we barely gave her any tip, you know, a dollar, two. And I think, yeah. So I would go into rehear- go into rehearsals. I was just filled with caffeine. And on top of that, just like with Elvis, you know, when he go, thank you very much. Um, he was afraid of, I, I, was, I was afraid of, I was afraid of dropping my lines, of not knowing my lines. And if I talked fast, at least it would, it strung it together. It was a complete thought that bump, 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 bump. And it just kept moving, it just kept moving along. 
And so he, he'd be like, don't talk so fast. You know, like, okay, so there's this thing with, with plays, you know, in movies, there's a lot of pauses in between stuff. In plays, you want the dialogue to go quick. Where are you going? Going to the store. Why? Well, because, you know, so there's, but you don't have to talk fast. Just make sure your line comes up on the back of the other line. So where are you going? To the store. Why are you going to the store? Because I want to. Okay, well, are you going to pick up cat food? Yeah, maybe I will. So, it's, you know, you're fast coming in at the punctuation mark. The rest of the sentence doesn't have to be fast. And there is such a, an extraordinary feeling that comes when you know that you've got all the lines. The lines are just right there and they're going to come to you. And bam. Boop, beep, beep, boop, boop. Put in the, put in the, you know, put in the computer. Bam. Bam. There you go. that hubbub 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 so Sheldon Patinkin I came to learn was the artistic director of Second City and he knew all those guys from Second City way back from Second City Saturday Night Live way back in the day all the Steppenwolf actors all the Goodman Theater actors John Malkovich Gary Sinise Laurie Metcalf. He, this man was taught improvisation from Viola Spolin. Viola Spolin is the originator, the creator, the, the one who kind of put into words what improvisation is all about. And it started as games for kids, which then moved on to something that adults could do. So, what grew out of her teachings was the compass players. And Sheldon was a part of a part of that. He was taught improvisation. All those techniques which he brought with him. And he was an editor on Second City Television. So then it was branched off into Second City, and then it branched off to the uh, Improv Olympics. Del Close was another one of those guys. He formed the, the uh, Improv Olympics, which I ended up finding out later. That guy used to be a heroin addict and was uh, really good friends with Ken Kesey. He went on those acid tests way back in the day. If you, get ever, if you ever get a chance, read Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. So Sheldon had helped out with Second City. He and then Marty DeMott which was his protege. He t- he, those guys taught us yes and. They taught us the, the ensemble spirit. They taught us the importance of, of every single character on stage, the importance of every single word on the page of plays, which I wasn't uh, very good with at all. I'd kind of improvise the dialogue. I'd kind of like gloss over the general meaning of what my character was saying. And, uh, oh, jeez. Oh, so, but that's the thing, you know, these, these words are, 
what are they called? Deliberated, de- delib- debilitated, uh, not de- deliberated, deliberated, yeah. Deliberated and, and, and intentionalized. They, they, they really put a lot of thought into those words. There's, there's, you know, there's a reason why they're using that specific language, why this particular character is using this particular language. So those guys taught me about that. And when you're in a play, you know, when the energy, when everyone is an ensemble, you can feel the vibes of what's going on stage, backstage. And that's where it gets to the point when you're watching a real good theater and it's one organ- organism and everybody is working together. Like this Anima movie, you got to see Anima. Mm. I just took a big spoonful of something called Wetter Spoon 100% Raw Manuka Honey. Product of New Zealand. Unpasteurized honey. Active 12 plus. Witterspoon's raw manuka honey is sourced from the remote, pristine areas of New Zealand, South Island. As part of our testing methods and to differentiate our potency level, if each batch of Witterspoon manuka honey is tested for its pollen count, live enzymes, antioxidants, and phytochemical components. Wow. I got this um, from my buddy Jeremy Polensky. Who moved off to moved off to uh, Portland? Hang out with his buddy Scott. I hope everything's going on okay out there. Mm. so good. So those guys taught us everything about ensemble spirit. So watching Anima, you'll see true ensemble spirit there. That is true ensemble spirit. Everybody is in it together. Everybody's a moving organism. The whole thing, everything everywhere, all at once, it's textures, it's movements, it's... That... Oh, man. It's just a masterpiece. Masterpiece. Pure ensemble spirit. You... you when you watch that and you just tune in, just just don't you know don't talk during this movie. This is one of these movies that you you really want to tune into and really just really tune into, and live in, and just let unfold. You don't try to figure it out. You just let it unfold. And if and if it makes you cry, the crying that the the the. The, what, the reason why you're crying is the joy that you feel of seeing so much collaboration, so much kindness. Because you have to be kind in order to be collaborative. So much cooperation, so much reciprocation. That's what make you, will make you cry. The togetherness of seeing all that. That's... that's that that's when you know that you're you're touching true source right there. It's beautiful. So Sheldon Patinkin. Uh, passed he passed away a couple of years ago. I have a good recording of him on on my SoundCloud. If you go to 
I've got a couple of SoundCloud pages. If you go to soundcloud.com slash CEC, I think. Let's see. Let's check this out. SoundCloud. Yeah, there it is. Okay, so soundcloud.com slash CEC, and you can listen to some of my uh, my music and then, and musings because on here is Sheldon Patinkin. He left a message on my... Let's see if... I'll try to play it through here. Let's see if you can hear this. Let's see if you can understand what's going on. I made on a four-track. I took uh, long ago... Um... I took some voicemails and added some just strange sounds to it. And so I had called up Sheldon to ask him if he was friends with Andy Kaufman, if he ever hung out with him, any of that stuff. This is at the beginning at, at the beginning of seeing AndyKaufmanLives.com or of, of reading the website AndyKaufmanLives.com and all of that. And I figured, well, certainly Sheldon would have would have met this man. By the way, if you ever want to check out even, you know, like if you want to check out what AndyKaufmanLives.com, like the remnant of what it actually used to be, go to archive.org. I know I'm giving you a whole lot of information here. Go to archive.org. Look in there. You'll see the Wayback Machine. Put in AndyKaufmanLives.com right there in the Wayback Machine. You'll find some interesting stuff. So here we go. Here's Sheldon Patinkin about Andy Kaufman. recording if you go to soundcloud.com slash cec if you also want to hear other songs that i also did you can go to soundcloud.com slash i am an orphan i chose that because i'm in the blues brothers i don't know if i ever told you that i'm in the blues brothers and I met John Belushi. I'm not going to get into the big stories here. However, I met John Belushi, and my dad had this idea. He goes, wouldn't that be great if you... Imagine if there was a movie, if you do a movie where the orphans get back together. You know, and I thought of this in two different ways. I thought, ooh, wow, a documentary, you know, documentary style. And then the orphans could talk about their memories on the set. 
Heck, maybe Dan Aykroyd would be there. You know, maybe that that would be the punctuation mark. We meet Dan Aykroyd or, or John. We talk to John Landis or you know who knows. I don't know if there's ever been a, a Blues Brothers documentary. Maybe that's something I ought to think about. Is a Blues Brother make a Blues Brothers documentary? Huh. I gotta look. I gotta look out for that. There, there, I'm sure there's a Blues Brothers documentary. Uh, and the other way I was thinking was if it was, um, let's say you just call it the orphans. And. And uh, it's about them. Maybe they break Dan Aykroyd out of jail or uh, Elwood Blues out of jail or something. I thought that would be fun. So when I came out here, I, th- I, I decided to start calling myself I Am an Orphan and use that as a way of sort of being a beacon in, in, in getting other people to let me know whether they know where the other orphans are or not. I looked online and I tried contacting some of these guys. Some of their names, like I was really good friends with a kid named Baba Tunde. He and I would always see each other at auditions after that. We'd always see each other at auditions. And um, I lost a Dunkin' Donuts commercial to him because on the way to the audition, because my mom used to take me, I was a child actor. My mom used to take me around all the time in Chicago I love getting out of out of school early. That was awesome. Kids would always wonder why is he getting out of school early. I wouldn't tell anyone. I just my mom would always tell me keep you know, stay humble, don't get a big head, stay humble. And so I wouldn't I wouldn't tell any of the kids what I was doing, where I was going. I don't I didn't want them. To think I was bragging or whatnot, and then eventually, I eventually I got a cereal box. O's. Well, I was on another one before that. Graham Crack O's. I was in a whole bunch of. Did a lot of modeling. There's so this cereal called O's, and it was me. Like we climbed a mountain of these gumballs. You could see on the on the box. Um. It was, and I put a blue, pink balloon in my mouth because a regular, um, if I blew a regular uh, bubble, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wouldn't stay up. It wasn't, it would shrivel under these lights. So they put a pink balloon in my mouth. So, so it was like, ah, we climbed the top of this gumball mountain. And if you get enough, you know, and oh, in every package, I think that's what it was. In every box of O's, you'd get like four or five of these gumballs. They're in, you know, in the bottom of the box and um, wrapped up. And uh, so, yeah, as a little kid, I got to, I got, that was my first movie. That's how I got my Screen Actors Guild card. Got my SAG card because of that. (laughs) And uh, I'm an orphan, so... Bob, yeah, so Baba Tunde beat me out to a uh, Dunkin' Donuts commercial because on the way there, I got so sick from this tr- this truck exhaust. I got so sick, and uh, we couldn't go. I was I was like, Mom, let's I'm good. Let's go. Let's go. And but I was very happy for Baba Tunde. 
Even at that young age, I don't, I didn't feel the competition, did I? Maybe against my brother. That happens with brothers. It happens with, with, with siblings, I think. They get this idea that this kid is getting more than me, or, you know, you start having to learn how to share stuff when the new baby's in the house. You have to learn how to go, okay, we can all play, play along with this stuff. This, you know, I don't have to hold all the toys right now. And my brother always had a sense of value with whatever, whatever, he was, whatever toy he was playing with at the time. There's always this great sense of gratitude and value, I would notice. So I'm an orphan. I decided I'm going to use that when I play out here. And my buddy Daniel ended up letting me play over at the Voodoo Lounge back where, back, it, well, it was the Voodoo Lounge at the House of Blues on, on Sunset. I'm very, very honored to say that I have played the House of Blues on Sunset. I personally have played the House of Blues on Sunset. Holy cow. That's nuts. Just crazy hearing myself say this out loud. And then uh, I ended up finding through, through astounding cir- uh, synchronistic circumstances which I can't go into details of because we have such a short time here. However, I'll say my buddy Lawrence, who I share a lot of cosmicalities with, lots of synchronicities, lots of usu. Oh, man, the synchronicities just keep on stacking around him. It turned out that his friend Jane Line, who he also shares synchronicities with, her fiancé, Jeff Cahill, was a blues was what was an orphan, and I had met that guy at at uh, at one of the parties that they throw over at this place called the Hillary, where Lawrence and Chris Corman and Ado Plashart and uh, V V Lee used to live. They used to throw these great parties over there. Wonderful. It was so great, and I apparently had, I had met Jeff Cahill long ago. I didn't even know. Didn't even know he was a, uh, an orphan. So then Lawrence tells me one time, he's like, I just found out that Jane Line's fiance was uh, an orphan in Blues Brothers. And I'm like, what? So then I ended up contacting him through Facebook and uh, sending him my music. He goes, hey, why don't you play at On The Rocks? And On The Rocks is a, a spot above the Roxy, which is a famous club on, on, on Sunset Strip. On The Rocks upstairs, Jack Nicholson, John Lennon, all these guys used to... Uh, John Belushi all these guys used to hang out up there and drink and in fact On the Rocks was the last place that John Belushi was at before he went to, the, to, to Chateau, Har- uh, Chateau Marmont and died it was crazy so just to play up in that room was a big deal and they called this one room the Jack Nicholson room they go, oh yeah, we don't we don't let anybody else know, but this, you know, this this little room back here is Jack Nicholson's room. So every time he's in town, he comes here. That's his little room. He goes. Also, we have one of Elton John's pianos up in this other room up here, which is somehow I guess behind the bar or something. So Jeff Cahill, I found out, he would book bands to play it on the rocks. He gave a lot of people out here the opportunity to play their first times in Hollywood, arriving here and bam, okay, on the rocks. He helped out so many people. He was a t- terrific artist. And he passed away about six months after I met him. We still don't know what happened. He had some kind of stomach issue thing. And, uh, but it was crazy because I got to play it on the rocks and it was near Halloween and I dressed up like Doctor Who. 
Uh, I had a long scarf that my friend had knitted for me. It looked just like the doctor's. I had a big coat. I had this like curly wig. And so I pretended I was Tom Baker. So it was around Halloween time. So there was some people in there dressed up. And I made this promo saying, in the promo, it, it said, uh, maybe the jo- ghost of John Belushi will be there with us. Um, and something about, wouldn't that be great if Dan Aykroyd joined us? And so I, ha- I had this little promo video about this stuff. And just saying, look, this is the first time in 32 years that these, these orphans are being reunited and there we were. And I made this a t-shirt for him said, I am an orphan. So I called him up on stage and, and I gave him a t-shirt and we sang Rawhide together with my buddy Billy Thomas, who was playing guitar. He came up for guitar on that. And uh, we played Rawhide. Oh my God. It was just phenomenal. It was just such a fun show. And during that time, what happened was while it was going on, I put my back to the audience. This is, this is where it was sort of like my, my uh, Andy Kaufman transformation from Elvis into just Andy Kaufman. Well, this was, I, I ended up finding a mask that looked like the top half of the Blues Brothers. It was like the, it was like the, um, it was the glasses and then it had sideburns and it had a hat and it had, like that was the top part, but you could still talk with your nose and mouth, you know, your regular face and still talk and whatnot. So I had that on. No, 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 no. So I had on my Doctor Who gear and before Rawhide started, I start taking off my wig. I start taking off my coat. And my buddy Billy Thomas is going, and I'm telling him, like, okay, just wait until I turn around. So I take off the wig and take off my coat. And what I have underneath is my my black tuxedo. So that whole time I was really hot up there. But I had underneath this coat, all this stuff, I had my black tuxedo. And uh, so, and my I Am an Orphan t-shirt on, under it. And then, so I... With my back to the audience, I put the mask over my head. I turn around, and now I look like one of the Blues Brothers. And there I am with with uh, Jeff Cahill, and we're singing Rawhide. And uh, so during the show, at some point, I was about to sing this this song that I wrote about Andy Kaufman. And I go, okay, uh, you know, this song is about Andy Kaufman. And all of a sudden, I didn't realize it, but my buddy, Alex Smart, who you've heard me talk about before, and he was also he'd also he's also helped out on a lot of uh, the original the for beginning K Chung uh, radio episodes. Um, I didn't realize, but he was dressed like Latka. So he comes forward, he comes forward, and he's all in white. And it says Latka right there, and I'm like, what, what? Latka's here. So I brought him up on stage before I played the song. Oh no, I think I even left him up there while I played the song. So then afterwards, this is the other crazy synchronicity. Okay, and this is what I'm going to end this broadcast with. So, at the end of the night, uh, or when I'm done with my set or whatever, everybody came out to support me. Man, it was just so great. And 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 Jeff told me he goes, he goes, look, normally you know normally it's five bucks to get in. He goes, but if you want, you, you know, he's like the five dollars is for the artist. He goes. But he's like, if you think they're going to drink, I won't charge them the five bucks. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's great. So all my friends got in free. And um, so, okay, so after I played, I look over, and there are two guys dressed like the Blues Brothers. And this is about two or three days before Halloween or something. There were two guys dressed like Blues Brothers. And I said, do you guys realize, Did you? were you here earlier? They're like, no, we just got here. I go, so you weren't here during Rawhide. When I sang Rawhide, no. <laughs> I said, me, 
and Jeff Cahill over there, who booked this, this, this whole shenanigan, we are orphans from the Blues Brothers, and here are the Blues Brothers. And I said, and on top of that, I made a promo that talked about the ghost of John Belushi being here with us, and Dan Aykroyd. Well, what happened? We had the ghost of John Belushi there. We had Dan Aykroyd, so to speak. We had the Blues Brothers right there. It conjured it up, man. And we took a photo, and boy, that was just phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. So keep your ears, eyes, senses, antennae open to this kind of magic because, man, you never know how it's going to unfold and who you're going to be able to tell those stories to in the future and who you might inspire to keep their ears, eyes, and antennas out for interesting stories like that. As far as I'm concerned, this is what life is worth this is what makes life worth living. These cheap thrills, the epiphanies, the synchronicities, the dreams. Oh, man, it's good. It's juicy. It's delicious and nutritious. It's cosmically delicious. It's cosmically delicious. All right, folks, uh, you're listening to Inspirato Projecto, and uh, we'll talk to you later. You'll find us on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Google Podcast, all over the place. Uh, I, uh, tune in. Uh, a whole bunch of places, a whole bunch of places. Talk to you later. Real quick, I just want to say this extra interesting thing is that Jeff Cahill, the one that I ended up connecting with years later, just so happens to be in the exact same scene with me when Kev Kellway is talking to the orphans when Curtis the janitor, which I thought was funny too. My name is Kurt. Curtis the janitor and Cab Calloway is there on the on the uh, steps talking to us about going going out to the you know to help out the Blues Brothers. And you see little me there, and I smile. It's like two seconds you see me up on screen, um, and you see me smile. Well, it turns out when you freeze that frame, standing right exactly behind me, this taller kid in this red shirt. That's Jeff Cahill. Just insane.